Here's what Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 proclaims to us. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was thinking earlier this week, Megan and I had one of those moments, maybe several of them, I don't know, uh, one of those moments where... um, you know, you, there's just a lot going on. You just kind of get bogged down. And, you know, it wasn't really anything enormously looming over us or our marriage or our kids. But it was just the little losses. You know what I'm talking about? Like, the, like just things not going right. It could be with parenting. It could be with family stuff. It could be health stuff. And you've got on top of that your own, like, emotional stuff. Anybody else with me? You know, you're just, you're just drifting through all of that. And uh, we just kind of both looked at each other in a moment of weakness and said, I'm ready for Christmas to be over. I thought to myself, man, there's something wrong with that statement, right? There's got to be something that's missing in my understanding of Jesus Christ's birth, entrance into the world, taking on flesh, taking on humanity, if I'm ready for the celebration to be over. And it just kind of hit me later that evening This is what it would be like if Jesus hadn't come. This is what it would be like living with the reality of one advent of Jesus has come, but but not with the other reality of the second advent that Jesus is coming. This is what it would be like to live without much hope in this life. It wasn't a long season for us, but a night where we kind of had what I call advent amnesia. All right, Advent amnesia, meaning this. We just kind of forgot what it's all about. We kind of lost sight of why we should be celebrating. And today what I want us to do is I want us to hone in on the birth of Jesus. Because there has to be more here for us. If you're anywhere experiencing the same thing that I have experienced this week. And and the way that I want to kind of tackle this is I want to look at three words. Kind of three points that kind of come around this text. And there are these words, prophecy, providence, and presence. So let's dig into prophecy, all right? Um, we're going to flip over to John 13 real quick and just look at this. But, but this, this really has to do with the promises of God and how prophecy is given for our confidence in the promises of God. This, this is why God does it. So, so much of the Bible is prophecy, and, and a prophecy is a promise made that hasn't come to fruition yet, okay? In fact, much of the Bible is what we would call prophetic literature. You've got the major prophets, you know, the guys like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then you've got the minor prophets, all of the names of the Bible that you can't pronounce, basically, right? Habakkuk or Habakkuk, I mean, however you want to pronounce it. I mean, that's that's a wild one for us, right? And so you've got all of those, and they're all dedicated to this purpose, to helping God's people turn from their sins and turn to him 
through seeing what God is going to do, there's these promises that are uttered that will come to pass. Prophecy is so significant because it shows, but then it proves God's providential involvement in history, in the history of the world and in our lives. And church, we need this desperately because we have Advent amnesia. We tend to forget that God is present with us. We tend to forget that he's involved in every single detail of our lives. We tend to forget that, don't we? We need to know that all of this pain, that, that all of this chaos, that all of these disappointments, these losses that we experience are counting towards something much bigger than ourselves. And God knows our finiteness. And he knows that that has a tendency to lead us to doubt in our pursuit of who he is. And here's our big idea of where I want us to, to wrap this thing up and take us to today. It's this, that Jesus has come. And because Jesus has come, that gives us confidence that God is providentially involved in the details of our lives. So, so when Jesus was with his disciples, this is about the prophecy part of this. When Jesus was with his disciples, in John chapter 13, um, he, he's kind of he's getting down to the brass tacks. He's, he's facing the cross. It is the week of the passion. He's in the upper room with his disciples. They're all gathered around the table. He's instituted the Lord's Supper, tran- transitioned that from the Passover feast. They're all sitting around the table. And then Jesus is, is having a good time with them, but he shares some of the deepest truths ever. And one of the things that he says is, hey, listen, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is not who he says he is. One of you is going to sell me out, literally. And they're all kind of like, oh, it's not going to be me, you know, it's not us. And, and Jesus says this in John 13, 19. I think this could, could be kind of a, a lens that we look through all prophecy about in the Scripture. And, and it's this. He says this, I'm telling you this now, telling you about the prophecy that, that Judas is going to betray him, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. That's the whole goal of prophecy. That's the whole reason that God tells us things in the Scriptures before they happen. And this is key to our understanding of Jesus. You know, think about prophecy. Some people have come after Jesus, and they've claimed things that are not accurate. They've said that Jesus is going to come on this date. And the date comes, and they're ready, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. And they claim it with such confidence. But what does the Scripture say? Only the Father knows the time. So how are we going to make guesses? There have been people that have made extra additions to the scriptures. They formed occults from these things, false prophets with false claims that have not come to pass. And here's the key to all of that. You know that someone is a false prophet when their prophecy does not come to pass. But with Jesus, it's so different. We we can look through the hundreds of prophecies that have been fulfilled by the birth of Jesus Christ, but I want to look at just two that relate to Luke chapter 2 today. The first one came 700 years before Jesus came. 700 years. And, And it was, the Lord was speaking to King Ahaz, 
And he, he, he says, hey, King Ahaz, you can ask me for a sign, any sign, I'll give it to you. You name it. He wanted him to have confidence in who he was. And Ahaz is like, no, I don't want to. And he says, fine, then I'll give you a sign. Here's the sign I want to give you about who I am. And it's Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, one of the most popular, most famous prophecies. And, and here's what the Lord says to him. He says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, King Ahaz. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and, shall, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, I don't know about you, but I've made some pretty good guesses in my life. I've guessed like the Super Bowl winner, you know, except for the Falcons. I tried for that one. That didn't really work out. Um, you know, or guessed someone's age before. You, you know, you kind of make some guesses. But this one's bold. I mean, that someone who's not married, who's never done the things that married people do, is going to have a child? I mean, this is the problem. 700 years before the Messiah that you're looking for is going to be born of a virgin. This never happened before. This will never happen again. And, and why did Jesus have to be born of a virgin? Why is that so significant? Why could he not just be born of a human man? Because Jesus doesn't have original sin like we do. Now, now what's original sin, Ryan, you might say? The best way to explain original sin is this. Um, a lot of times we think that, uh, that we are sinners because we sin, right? That's what we think. Okay, I'm, I'm a sinner because I've sinned, okay? I wasn't a sinner until I sinned, until I was aware of my sin. But original sin means this, that you sin because you're a sinner, that you were born a sinner, that because of what happened in the garden, original sin, the, the sin of pride, the sin of deceit, all of those things, the sin of fear, all of those things have been imputed to you. And whether you know it or not, from, from these babies that have just been born, they've got original sin on their lives. And, and because of that, we're in bondage to sin. That, that we can actually only sin apart from God's intervention in our lives. That even our best intentions in this world are laced with sin. Now, so we need a Savior that is not like us in this sense because he wouldn't be able to save us. He would fall into the same traps that we do. We can't get ourselves out of it. Not only would this Redeemer need to be a virgin born, but even his name would need to communicate, as Isaiah says, his, the Father's intentions of this Savior. That he'd be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. To give us further confidence that he, that God is with us and for us, that we might actually believe in his promises, the prophet Micah tells us about the unlikely birthplace of where Jesus was born. And it was, this was 400 years approximately before Jesus came. So 700 years, 400 years, a long time, right? And here's what Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says this. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient, or literally in the Hebrew, eternal days. And where was Jesus miraculously born, church? Bethlehem. So, so the bread 
of life, Jesus called himself that in the book of John, the bread of life is born in the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem is called, the house of bread. So you see him, the, the, the whole purpose of Jesus coming is aimed at this redemptive purpose, these life-giving purposes for us. So my question to you is this. Do these promises or any other promises, these prophecies that God gives us, do they do anything in your heart? Or are you just kind of dead to them? Do they awaken your soul? Do they show you the warmth of who God is and his desire to come after you and to be with you and to send you a redeemer and a savior to be worshipped so that you might not fall victim to eternal separation from God because of your sin? Does that do anything in you? Because Advent, church, is about looking back at Jesus' coming so that we can look forward to his second coming and living in that tension of expectancy and hope, yet feeling pain and despair and all of those things. So prophecy is the first thing we've got to understand about God's promises for us to understand the the story of Luke chapter 2. Second thing is this, providence. The, The providence of God reveals that everything in life is meaningful. Everything. So here's what I don't want you to miss about Luke chapter 2. That in Luke chapter 2, they're very ordinary people that are experiencing extraordinary things brought about by the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the thing about you. You're very ordinary people. I'm a very ordinary person. We all reflect God together. We reflect him differently and magnificently we're very ordinary people, and God's intention for us is to experience his extraordinary grace throughout the details of our life. To not separate the ordinariness, the mundaneness of life from the extraordinary grace and presence that he gives us. Let me just remind you of, of what Luke chapter 2 says, and, and, and maybe help give a little light onto what this was like. The, the extraordinary is all in the midst of the ordinary here for Mary and Joseph. I think a lot of times we can look at Mary and Joseph's story and to think that, man, they just had it all together from the get-go. That, that they didn't have anybody hassling them or harassing them or, or judging them. That, that they didn't have any, maybe a second of doubt about some of those things. I think we can look at them like that just because we hear that they, they heard these, these prophecies from angels to fear not and that they did in that moment. But I bet during the night when the lights were out, the time when you tend to doubt. I I bet there were moments where it wasn't so easy. I I bet part of Joseph is tempted to believe that maybe Mary really has been cheating on him. Because that's what his his family's probably been saying to him. You know, just tell us the truth, Joseph. We think you can do better, son. Come on, Joseph. But, But he heard from God through a dream. And it gave him some confidence in the midst of the fear. And I bet part of Mary is tired of people judging her. She might think to herself, I'm just so misunderstood. Nobody knows the full story. They can't see it. I know that I'm not married. I'm pregnant. I've got this child that's on the way. And everybody thinks I'm this ungodly woman because they look at me from the outside. They don't see me from the inside. I'm just tired of being misunderstood by others. But angel Gabriel came to her. She said that he was, that she was favored. She was special, set apart by God for his plan. 
They had plans to have this baby in Nazareth, I could imagine, right? Because that's where they were both living at the time. That's where their families were. That's where their support structure was. And then the birth plan got interrupted because they're under Roman rule. And, and Caesar, uh, Caesar had gotten peace in Rome after a couple decades of just complete chaos. And, and Caesar, so he, he wants to know what he's dealing with. He's a part of this story, too. He wants to know what he's dealing with, so he does what any of us would do. He goes on a power trip, right? He goes on this power trip, and, 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 he, and he says, okay, I need to know how many people that I've got that could fight as soldiers, and then I also need to know how many people that I've got so I can know how much money that I can get from taxes so that I can build things and, and, uh, and uh, you know, statues and buildings and structures and architecture that will reflect me and build my legacy as the Roman emperor. But that's why he does the census, right? You see at times in the scriptures when kings wanted to do censuses and, and God said, no, don't do that because you're not trusting in me. It wasn't an act of faith for Caesar. He's on this power trip. Imagine that, that God's kingdom, church, could advance through an oppressive king on a power trip. What do you think about that? Do you see the details of what God is putting together? So then they've got to go to Bethlehem. And they have to go to Bethlehem. Uh, because that's where King David's from, and Joseph is a part of the family, and so that's where he has to go uh, back to register to, to the clan there. And, and so Joseph is this, is this common guy. He's a woodworker. He's a carpenter. Okay, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a small town guy, and he's, he's trying his best to make a living, and, and this time that he has to take off work, he's probably not getting paid for, Right? And so, so he and, and, and Mary are, are making their way uh, to the town of Bethlehem from Nazareth, which is about 100 miles. But, if, but being a, a, a father of four children and a wife that's been, uh, you know, had four children that's nine months pregnant, I can imagine, you tracking me? I can imagine that that 100-mile hike probably took at least a week, Right? Because they're stopping every 30 minutes to go use the bathroom, right? That baby Jesus is pressing in on the bladder. You know, you got to stop, got to make that happen. And, and to make matters worse, Joseph didn't even think to look for an Airbnb beforehand. Right? I mean, so they get there. I, and, I, and I bet Mary didn't even check with her midwife or her MD before, you know, because they would have definitely said, you cannot take a trip across Israel, okay? You, you, you're, you're kind of bedridden. You're nine months pregnant. You can't be traveling. You can't fly during this time, right? You got to, yeah. So you see all of these ordinary things, all of these complications that were probably coming into mind, things that you and I think about every day. We, we tend to think that Mary and Joseph didn't deal with those things. But they're very ordinary people. I mean, even Joseph. So here's the deal. So he's born in, in a manger is what the scriptures say. We, t we have an idea of a manger. It's this little wooden box with all of this fluffy straw that's supposed to feel ange angelic, right? Like heavenly, right? But really what, what, he was, what he's born into is something that looks more like a piece of stone, all right? I've, I've been to Bethlehem before, and, and they showed us what was more likely for him to be born in. I, I'll show a picture of it to you in a second. But, I mean, Joseph didn't even think to bring the pack and play with him, right? I mean, he probably had this awesome, this awesome crib built because he's a carpenter back at home, but he didn't even think to bring that with him. So Jesus was probably born in something like this, 
That's what historians believe. It wasn't this nice little wooden thing. It was a feeding trough for animals. Does that look comfortable to you? No, and he was probably born in a cave, right? Because that's where, that, that's kind of where the barn was and a lot of times in a cave, right? So we don't know all of the details. I'm just, I'm speculating a bit, but, but after being there and talking to historians, that's what a lot of them believe. Sounds like your family vacation, right? <laughs> all of those things that can go wrong probably did. All of those thoughts that they had probably did. But through it all, the extraordinary was still meeting them in the very ordinary details of life, bringing about God's perfect plan, prophesied about from eternity past. When we, when we see our lives detached from God's involvement, it tends to make us wonder what all of the pain is for, what all of the suffering is for, right? I mean, most of us are willing to endure hardship, are we not? If we, if we know that it's counting for something, that it's gaining us something. And the thing that we need to understand about the providential plan of God that applies to us from the story of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, is that God is absolutely interested in connecting the extraordinary with the ordinary in your life and in my life. So what we see is God's providential control in Luke 2 working in two ways, just quickly, in history and in humility. So how was the providence of God, the control of God, the plan of God, the details that God has to come to pass, how is that rooted in history? Well, it's no... It's no um, Surprise that Dr. Luke, who's a historian and a doctor himself, who, uh, who, who wrote the, 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 the two-volume books of, of Luke and Acts together as history for the church, uh, Theophilus, it's, it's likely that this guy named Theophilus hired him to do this, wanted him to do this. He dedicates that in Luke chapter 1 to him and in Acts 1. And, and so he's writing with great precision in great detail. It's, it's no surprise to me that Luke includes Caesar Augustus and Quirinius because you can look back through the history of the church, extra biblical resources as well, and you can find Caesar Augustus. Octavian was his name. And you can find Quirinius. They were real people who lived real lives, who did real things in the midst of God's good plan. And that gives us this confidence that it's not some fairy tale, that it was real, that Jesus really did come, that God was really working through Rome. Even though Augustus didn't know it at the time, God was working through it all. He was working amazing power through even oppressive government. Isn't that something we need to hear today? Isn't that something we need to believe and see? Galatians 4 talks about this opportune time. Like this, Galatians 4, 4 and 5, Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. That's the tie into that original sin, right? He had to be born under the law just like us to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters of God. It was the only way to connect us to eternal life, was for Jesus to come and to be born under the law, but to be God himself. 
It's the only way for us. Now, the interesting thing about this, the, the place I want to focus in on just for a minute, is that phrase, when the fullness of time had come. You know, in the Greek language, there's, there's two words for time. There's, there's kairos. Everybody say that with me. Kairos. And there's chronos. Say that with me. Chronos, right? This word here is chronos. Now, now kairos is um, it means like an opportune time for action. Like, think of it more like a, the right season of time, the right moment of time. But chronos is, is more how we think about time. It's, it's, uh, it's linear. It's sequential. It's like the watch that you might have on your wrist. That's the type of time that Paul is talking about here. And, and here's what it means, is that in God's master plan for how his world would be designed and his love would be revealed and his mission would advance to redeem the world, that it had to happen at that exact time, down to the minute. Not a minute later, not a minute sooner. Jesus was born the way he was to save us from the way that we are. Let me say that again. Jesus was born the way that he was to save us from the way that we are. He had to be born just like that to fulfill all of the prophecies so that you might have confidence that he is who he says that he is. Now, secondly, his providence is rooted in humility. Think about this. I think we, we read the birth narrative sometimes, and, and we think we read that last Luke 2-7 where it talks about he was born... Uh, uh, in, in a manger, basically, because there was no room in the end. And I think we tend to, to think about that and read that like, okay, because the census was happening, you know, Bethlehem was overcrowded. There's only probably a couple of hotels there. Mary and Joseph were running late because they had to stop so much for Mary. And, and they get there to Bethlehem, and all the rooms are filled. And so they go to the next best thing, a barn. Okay, and so that's that's typically how we think about the story, but I just here's what we're saying if we believe that about the the birth narrative, we're saying that God has the power to take the most powerful man on the earth at the time, the most powerful kingdom on the earth almost in history, and to put him on a power trip at this exact time when Mary is nine months pregnant, so that she'll have to go to Bethlehem. And then she'll be in Bethlehem, and she'll have to have the baby there. We're saying that God has the power and the omniscience and the authority to do all of that, but he can't free up a room in a hotel? You see what I'm saying? Where Jesus was born tells us so much about who he is and who he came to be and who he came to transform us into as his image bearers. Proverbs 21.1 says this, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. That confidence that, that God knows what he's doing, and, and, and he was born in that manger, in that, that likely that, that, that kind of rock pit, because it would tell the story of who he is and who he came to be to this world. Do you remember in uh, Luke chapter 9, there were some disciples that, that said, hey, Jesus, we're going to follow you wherever you go. Like, like, we saw what you did back in Luke chapter 8, right? And, and we're going to be, we're your boys, all right? We're going to follow you. We got this. We've seen you. We trust you. And what's, what's Jesus say to them in Luke 9? He says this. As they were going along on the road, someone said, I'll follow you where you go. And Jesus said to him, hey, you know, foxes have holes and birds of the air 
have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So you want to follow me? Prepare to be homeless, because that's who I came to be. So we see the homeless nature of who Jesus is in Luke chapter 9, couch surfing, often sleeping outside with his disciples in boats all over the place, because he was born homeless, because this earth was never his home. We see that he was born poor. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So Jesus came to be poor, born a carpenter, born in a barn. His best buddies, fishermen. Jesus' hands scarred from working hard, callous from working hard. His best friends, the fishermen, I mean, they, they probably couldn't get a date because they smelled so bad all the time. You know, I mean, they're just, I mean, just ordinary people. Hardworking people. You know, I was, I was thinking about this reality this, this week that, um, that there's, there's, there's no one that can look to Jesus and say, you don't know what it's like to be me. There's absolutely no one that can do that. I mean, think about that. Jesus came to live this, this humble life, to spread humility throughout the earth, to say that this is the way that the kingdom has come to be in this world. Follow me and do what I'm doing. I mean, what would it be like to have the humility for you and I to treat others like the most important people in the world, to have that type of humility? 2 Corinthians 8 says that's what Jesus came to do, that he was rich in every way, seated at the right hand of the Father in eternity, rich in wisdom, rich in love, rich in everything. Yet he chose to become poor so that we could become rich. But what would it look like for us to, to take that type of humility that Jesus resembled and reflected for us, that he empowers us to live out of, and to take that to the world? Because that's what Jesus is like to be present among others. So we've talked about prophecy. We've talked about providence. Lastly, I want to talk about this name Emmanuel. And the big word to describe Emmanuel that's in Luke chapter 2 and these prophecies is this word presence. Presence. Let me, let me, let me show you from Hebrews chapter 4 what Jesus being Emmanuel really means, Okay. Let me, let me show this to you real quick. Here's what he says in chapter 4, verse 14. He says this. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, as he's talking about Jesus, he says, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. He's come from heaven down to earth. His name is Jesus, and he's the Son of God. And he loves us that much to pass through the heavens. He says, Let us hold fast our confession that he's the Son of God. Hold fast our faith that what we see is not all there is. Hold fast our confession that Jesus Christ came to save sinners and we're the worst, right? Let us hold fast that because, because of how he came. Listen, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, to empathize, to know our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne 
of grace that we may have, that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. That the throne of grace, the representation of the presence of God. Jesus left the throne of grace, Revelation chapter 4. He left the throne of grace. He came to be among us. He lived a perfect life, lived a humble life, rooted in ordinary things with an extraordinary passion for who God was and for the world to know him, died a sinner's death, was raised to life miraculously because he's of God and he's sinless. And he ascended to heaven. He ascended right back to the same place that he left, the right hand of the Father, the throne of God. And he did all of this so that we could draw near with confidence. Because of this, just three quick things here. Jesus knows what it's like to be you. Jesus knows what it's like to be you. We, we, we spend a lot of time trying to be different than we are, don't we? We spend a lot of time trying to make ourselves look different, try to be in a different kind of place in life, a different status, different socioeconomic class, different set of circumstances. We spend a lot of our time trying to change ourselves. Yet Jesus comes to save the real you, not the future better version of you that you imagine that you'd be at right now in life, but he came to save the real you. And he becomes acquainted with life in a broken world, and he suffers the continuous consequences of sin to be like you. And here's why. No one can ever look at Jesus and say, you don't know what it's like to be me because the scriptures say that he suffered in every way. So in Jesus, here's what we have. We have both the empathy of someone who knows from experience because we tend to trust people who have experienced what we've experienced, don't we? They're the first people we go to when we get in over our heads, when life throws us a curveball. We go to the people who have been there. Why do we do that? Because we learn from the best. We go to Jesus, so we learn from his experience, but also you have in Jesus the one who can actually do something about it other than say, bless your heart, right? We have somebody who can do something about it. And so Jesus understands us, and he knows what it's like, church, to be homeless. He knows what it's like to be poor. He knows what it's like to have a dead-end job. He knows what it's like to have his friends die. He knows what it's like to be left out. He knows what it's like to not have a physical appearance that's desirable, as Isaiah 53 tells us. He knows what it's like to be understood, to be betrayed, to have a dysfunctional family, to be exhausted. He knows what it's like to be you, church. And that gives us so much confidence that he knows what he's doing in our lives. The second thing is this, is that because he's of God and he's sinless, he knows what it's like to not be you. And this is perhaps even better news than the fact that he knows what it's like to be you. Because it means that he can actually do something about our condition before God. You, you know, have you ever been on the phone with customer service? Uh, your, your, your blood pressure's raising up right now as I said that. Lie to me. You, you, you've been on the call with customer service, and they're just, they're just kind of running you in circles. And you're like, you say the words, let me speak to your manager, right? Let me speak to your manager. You, you say that, but you say it nicer because you're nicer than me. And... Um, and you do that because you don't think that the representative that you're talking to has the authority to do what you need them to do, right? 
But in Jesus, we have something completely different than that experience. In Jesus, we have representation. He knows what it's like to be you and authority. He knows what it's like to not be you. And we've got a friend and a savior all in one. We've got the ancient of days from eternity past here in the present with us now. Jesus can not only empathize with you, but he represents us to our Father. Anybody ever ask you, hey, where's Jesus at today? If, if I just knew where he was at today, I'd believe him. I'd believe in him. But the scriptures say that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. He came so that he could do that, that he could fully represent us. And that's what he's doing right now, because he's not like us. He's God. Lastly, Jesus is in the business of making us like him through his spirit. He's, he's, his presence, Emmanuel, means that he's like you, that he's not like you, and he has the power to change you. That's the beauty of it. And I think this is perhaps the best news of all, that he's God with us and his spirit is present with us now. And I was reading the, the end of the, the Gospel of Luke today and reading about the road to Emmaus and then the disciples when they were on the, the beach with Jesus. And, um, and, and the scriptures were just saying, that, um, that Jesus was opening their minds to understand who he was on the road to Emmaus, that he was, that he was showing them who he was throughout all of the scriptures. And, and, and he loves to do that. He loves, he loves to take us on this journey of showing us and giving us confidence in who he is and what he's come to do in our life to change us and to transform us. You know, in every other world religion, it's really the, the, the world imagines God is distant, that there's, that there's a space, that there's a separation. He's removed from his creation. And the holiest disciples are called to remove themselves from the bindings of this world and to pursue him. And we imagine him kind of being up at this high and holy place and, and everyone tries to find him, but nobody can really ever know if they're there or not. Nobody can ever know if they can have a relationship with him or not. But Jesus comes and he, he condescends himself to be among us. And he calls us to abide with him, to follow him, to walk hand in hand through this world together, to experience all of life with the perfect knowledge that Jesus is with us. And church, that's what Christmas is about. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what Advent is all about. The fact that God loves us so much that he made all these prophecies through prophets that he was going to come for us. And then he came through the providence of God miraculously, showed up at exactly the right time to redeem us, and that he's with us even as we wait for him today. I hope that's good news to you like it is to me. Let's pray. Father, pray that you would heal us from Advent amnesia, where somehow the miraculous birth of our Savior condescending to this earth would not just become normative to us. God, may our cries reveal the glory that you have and the beauty of what you want to share with us which is your plan, your son. Lord, I'm thankful that Jesus was plan A, that he wasn't plan B. 
the way that you have showed us your love is through sending a vulnerable child into this world to save us from the vulnerable place that we're in in our relationship with sin. God, I pray that you give somebody hope in here today. Somebody the prospect of living life through a different lens because Jesus has come. Pray that we'd have joys. In his name we pray. Amen.